Over the past uh, two nights we looked at Anatta Lakana Sutta, the not self characteristic. And one issue that has um, turned up in the interviews is where does rebirth or reincarnation fit into all of this? So tonight we're going to have a look at this question. Um, it's an, um, the, the doctrine of, of what I call life after life uh, is very important for the Buddha and in our culture it's widely rejected and widely misunderstood and the misunderstanding is part cultural uh, and very largely uh, because the uh, whole thing revolves around the issue of not-self, of anatta so it fits as part of the uh, part of the teaching on the, on the discourse so that's what we're going to do tonight and we'll start with mana, um, M-long-a-n-a, which usually translated conceit, literally means measuring. And we spoke about this. Um, at the surface, the self often appears as a whole series of narratives. At the bottom of it is mana, um, which involves measurement and therefore separation. So we talked about if I take something and I measure it, I establish its boundaries, and so I separate it from everything else. So mana always implies separation, and along with that comes comparison. So if this is separate from that, then how does this stack up against that? Um, mana goes very deep in the human mind, according to the Buddha, um, on the way to full awakening, mana is the last fetter to vanish. It's the final barrier. Um, when this goes completely, then that's full enlightenment. So it demonstrates how deep it goes in the mind. We can get a sense of it, well, particularly the conceit I am, asmi mana. Um, we can get a sense of it in our experience that we have of something behind our awareness um, something that looks out and is aware um, so if I'm aware I'm aware of something so there's something out there and then there's the awareness itself and these are the this is the basic dyad that we're working with but I have a sense that there's someone or something behind the awareness, in a sense, the audience of the show. Um, and this something has no content because it's behind awareness. The content of awareness is what we are aware of, which is out there. <coughs> but to be aware of something... <coughs> There we have this, this sense that there's something or someone back here who is a, who, to whom this is happening. And we could turn around and make that the object of awareness. But whatever we are aware of, still, behind that awareness, we have the sense that there's something or someone there 
who experiences all this. So mana is like always in the shadows. It has no content. It's not a specific something. It's just this vague sense. It cannot be pinned down to anything. Um, so mana, um, I am, uh, has no content but is energised by craving, tanha, and it searches for content. So awareness goes out, as well as desire and aversion, um, looking for something. So I am, but exactly what am I? Exactly who am I? So we're constantly on the search for some aspect of experience, something we are aware of, that we can hold to ground our sense of separateness, to pin it down as something. So I am this. So we can see it the way the mind searches for something to think about. Like there's always there's where we see how the mind throws up cognitions. There's plenty of them. But there's this tremendous energy in the mind that sooner or later, wham, the awareness will move out, grab one of them, and turn it into a story, and that's who I am. I am this. Or the feelings that come up. There's some kind of feeling or some kind of sensation in the body. Bang, that's me. And we, the awareness grounds itself on that and we construct an identity. So this is what we were talking about over the past couple of nights and it's what we're experiencing in our practice all the time. Now, this whole movement, what it does is it creates a way of relating to the world that revolves around what the Buddha calls extremes, anta. Remember we talked about those about in, in the middle way. The, the middle way rejects anta, it rejects extremes. So in the case of mana, the, the two extremes are sameness and difference. As soon as I make that move of separation, um, then this is different from that there's, because there's separation this is not that so there's a sense of difference but to have a sense of difference there has to be a background sense of sameness because without a background sense of sameness it doesn't make any sense to talk about difference so this is the same as that so these two moves that we make, these are really fundamental moves that we make, this is different from that. But this is the same as this. And we, and we make those moves all the time and construct a world and a self out of them. So if there's identity, if there's something I am, I am this, then there has to be something beyond, something outside of identity. I am not that. So, at, so um, uh, these are the basic movements that construct identity. Um, sameness and difference 
And in terms of the middle of the middle way, both of these possibilities are anta. They're both extremes, and they're both wrong. Um, they these these two movements construct the the, ba- the the basic building blocks of identity. I am this, so I'm not that. I'm male, so I'm not female. I'm Patrick, so I'm not yay. I'm good, so I'm not bad, etc. Um, um, so, in terms of the middle way, in other words, outside identity, both these moves are extremes and wrong. But from inside identity, um, this way of looking at the self within her world makes perfect sense. And it's the only sensible way to look at things. So um, either this is me or it isn't. If I look into a mirror, what are the choices? You know, it's either me in that mirror or it's somebody else. I mean, I suppose somebody could come up with hippie bullshit about something else, but it's bullshit. It's obvious. So, either this is mine, or it belongs to somebody else. It's, it's not complicated, it's not rocket science. So, either I am Patrick, or I'm somebody else. <coughs> either this is right, or it's wrong. So from inside identity, all of that, it doesn't just make perfect sense. It's obviously the only way things can operate. From outside identity, from the context of the middle way, they're both wrong. Is any of this making sense? Okay. Um, Now, Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, um, penetrated into all this. And before he became the Buddha, on the night that he sat down under the tree, and if we ask the early texts, so what happened? There were two accounts of his awakening, and one of them tells about the three Vedas that he went through throughout the night, throughout the three sections of the night. Now these are the three knowledges. Um, During the first third of the night he remembered his previous lives. Uh, During the second third he saw the falling and arising chutta upapata of other beings in the present and in the third um, um, third of the night he attained awakening. So these are the three knowledges and let's look at them, but especially the first one. Excuse me, are these three knowledges specific to a Buddha? Yeah. Well, they were specific to what happened to him that night. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if other people, yeah, other people can have Mm -hmm. the first two. They're they're part of the the psychic powers. But they're certainly what happened to the Bodhisattva, Mm -hmm. according to this account. Mm -hmm. Can you less than again, sorry? Um, Those previous lives. Remembered Memory of previous lives, 
The second one is the literally the falling and arising, but we can translate it as death and rebirth, of other beings in the present. And the third is the awakening itself. So this is this is the way the first one is described. So for he for each life that he remembers, he says, There I was so named of such a clan, with such an appearance, such as was my food, my nutriment, which can be broader than food, everything that sustained life, but especially food, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term, and passing away from there, I reappeared elsewhere. So he goes back lifetime after lifetime, do, 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 do. and this is what he remembers for each one. Now all of these things that he mentions are identity markers. They constitute what creates a sense of identity within Indian society, how an identity is constructed. So in other words, the Bodhisattva is looking back through his memory and he's recognising that at one time he held to a particular identity, but before that it was another one, and before that he had another identity, and before that he had another one, and another, and another, and another, and another. So he's doing something that we can do, except that he did it for multiple eons, whereas we might only do it for 20 years, 50 years, or whatever. Now, what this is about is that he, the Bodhisattva recognises from his personal experience the contingency and the impermanence of identity. Um, and how identity changes over time. So bringing it more to our level, we could say, when I was 10, I was dot, dot, dot. When I was 20, I was dot, dot, dot. When I was 30, I was dot, dot, dot. And so on. So what's happening is his sense of identity is starting to be shaken up. His sense of personal identity, it's still there, but it's starting to be shaken up. It's starting to be loosened. And this is preparing him for enlightenment? Preparing him for enlightenment. Then the second knowledge, the Bodhisattva sees the same contingency of identity flowing from one existence to another in the present, not in the past. The first one's all about memory and universally out, not just within his memory stream, so not just within his individual personal memory stream. So in the second one, it's the same understanding, but it's going out in the present and universally. So not not simply his identity being shaken up, because it's impermanent and dependent upon conditions, but everybody's identity is caught up in the same way. So those two um, knowledges give the same message. Identity is not fixed. It's not primary. There's something else going on which is deeper than identity. And these, these knowledges prepared him for the awakening kind of softened him up for the awakening so if you look we look at, at that um, that process and if we look then look at ourselves we take 
identity to be primary. For us, that's what's at the bottom. Um, and this assumption that we have is fundamentally not empirical because it's not that we can find this identity the identity is the product of mana mana is always in the shadows and we can never pin it down so we can't actually find this identity and if you look at what you're doing when you're meditating a lot of the time what you're doing is failing to find it yes. failing to find it you're seeing a process of construction you're seeing it go very deep you're seeing it driven by craving it's incredibly strong but you're not actually landing on the fixed permanent identity so the assumption that there is this identity is not empirical we assume it we experience from it we don't experience it we experience from it but this assumption is what gives death its power and why we're so preoccupied by death and by what happens afterwards because with death we are the ones who die and with birth we are the ones who are born and in fact that's what makes it interesting um, the Buddha rejects both of these assumptions for him identity is not primary what is primary is paticca samupada dependent arising um, identity self emerges as a series of patterns swirling around in the matrix of dependent arising it's rather like a stream where at the same place every at certain times of year a whirlpool will appear and then the conditions change and the whirlpool ceases but next year it's back and if, you, if we visit that stream, that, that particular part of the stream, at the same time each year, there it is. It's the whirlpool. It's been here for years. I used to visit this whirlpool when I was a kitty. And there it is. So we look at that whirlpool, and for us, identity is primary. That's what it is. But in fact, it isn't. It's just a temporary contingent result of a complex process which comes and goes. And what's primary is that process. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Buddha definitely believed in life after life. And If we ask, when, he, when, when the Buddha sees beings move from one existence to another, what is it that he's tracing? What's he, what's he tracking? Um, we naturally think what he's tracing is beings. Beings are born, they die, and then they're reborn, and he's, he's following them. 
life after life. And we naturally think in that way because we, for us, identity is primary. We operate from within self. But from the Buddha, he's, for him, what's primary is dependent arising. He's not tracking beings. What he's tracking are networks of cause and effect over time and from these networks emerge the perception of beings and then those perceptions cease and other perceptions arise and they cease and so on. So he's, in other words, he's tracing networks of karma vipaka, action and its ripening. He's not tracing networks of beings. You see the difference? Maybe not. So, when the Buddha speaks of life after life, he's not saying, I am born here, and then I'm born there, and then I'm born over there. But we tend to think that's, that's what he's saying. We just, we just assume that's what he's saying. He has to be saying that. But he's not saying that. Um, so even Buddhist intellectuals who argue against life after life, and the example I always give is Stephen Batchelor, because I, I was struck very much by his chapter on um, rebirth in his book, Buddhism Without Beliefs. I think it's chapter two, where he rejects rebirth, life after life. And I read the chapter, and I thought, no, nah, he can't be saying what I think he's saying. So I started at the beginning and read it again. But the more I read it, the more he was saying what I thought he was saying, which is what a lot of people who argue against the doctrine of rebirth say, um, when people argue against life after life, what they're actually arguing against is the idea that it's possible for any being to be somehow transported from one body to another. That's what they're arguing against. And so the question is, well, okay, well, what gets transported? Obviously not the body. So some, the mind, or some esoteric aspect of the mind. But this esoteric aspect of the mind has to contain all the data required to, you know, shape this person's life. And it's just nothing they can do can make this make any sense. It just doesn't make doesn't hold water. There's no convincing argument. So they reject the doctrine of life after life. But the problem is that what they're rejecting has got absolutely nothing to do with what the Buddha is teaching. The Buddha is not teaching that beings die and are then reborn. He's not saying that. He's saying that there are flowing patterns of dependent arising these operate through time and these give, give rise to the appearances that we perceive as beings. And these flows of cause and effect flow through very particular trajectories. Again, based on karma vipaka, action and its ripening. So it's not that this being becomes that being becomes this other being it's this cause leads to that effect which manifests as this cause leading to that effect 
which manifests as this cause leading to that effect, etc., etc., etc. That's what he's talking about. So, the way we think is we think there are beings, and if we're Buddhists and we're learned and we're spiritual, then we say, ah yes, and these beings are caught up in this universal pattern of cause and effect. That's not what the Buddha is teaching. The Buddha is teaching there is a universal matrix of cause and effect, and from this emerges the appearance that we put down, we label as that's a being. He's, it's quite different. Now we we think in this way because we assume that our fundamental situation is, and let's clear away all the bullshit and just get down to the basics. We think that our fundamental situation is that either I will survive death or I will not survive death. Really, that's it. If we toss out the spiritual mumbo-jumbo, this is what we come down to. This is our natural way of relating to this situation. Um, In other end, of course, if I am the one who survives death, who in some mysterious way is reborn somewhere else, then I'm interested. This is important. Um, If someone, if it's somebody else who is reborn, you know, maybe in some abstract cosmological way, uh, I'm not really interested. I mean, that's a nice kind of doctrine. But I'm not really interested. And if I don't survive death, I'm definitely not interested. Now that's our natural way of relating to this. And you see, all of it is based on me. What happens to me? Um, But the Buddha is not looking at this and is not speaking about this from inside any sense of me. He's speaking from beyond identity, from outside identity. And there it's a whole different matter. So if we start talking about life after life, then what we want to know about is who lives after death. That's important, isn't it? From the Buddhist perspective, if we ask the question, who will leave this hall after the talk, and we answer that question, we have also answered the question, who lives after death? Because it's the same question from his perspective. It's just a different way of asking exactly the same question. And if you can answer one, you can answer the other. Um, So the Buddha has this 
um, sense of this enormous universe within which all of this takes place. Um, he has a variety of terms to talk about what is usually translated as rebirth. One is upapati, going up or reappearance. Another one is punabhava, further becoming, renewed existence. And there are other terms as well, but I haven't collected them. But basically what they refer to is the Buddha's sense of the infinite possibilities of existence that are inherent in the universe. Because for him, the Buddha, the universe is infinite. So within the infinite universe, there are infinite possibilities. And essentially, I think this is what he's referring to. They do not refer to the fate of persons as they travel from one life to, one, to the next. They're not talking about that. Although, of course, um, we think they are. We assume they are. So, from inside identity, if there's a new birth, this is either me or it's not me. That's it. Um, but once we step outside of identity, that dichotomy simply does not apply. So the question, who is reborn, simply does not apply. It's an irrelevant question. It doesn't grapple with what the Buddha is talking about. These questions only arise within identity. They make sense only inside identity because they assume the real existence of the who, who is the one who dies and is reborn or not reborn. Um, all, of, all of these questions are just variations on the fundamental question of the self, which is, of course, but what about me? From the Buddhist perspective, these, there's no, there can be no answer to these questions because the questions themselves are the products of craving and delusion. Take away the craving and delusion and the questions don't even arise. And whatever answer that we come up with to these questions are simply expressions of craving and delusion, which in turn feed more craving and delusion. So it's just cycling around. Or as a local Zen teacher remarked, you cannot give a straight answer to a cook crooked question. The only, for the Buddha, how these questions can be answered, there's only one way in which they can be answered satisfactorily, and that comes from the dissolution of the question itself. When the question dissolves, that's the answer. In other words, in this life, the craving and the delusion that drives the question, the obsession with the fate of the self, myself, the self that survives through time, when that obsession drops away, the questions drop away, and that's the answer. 
the questions and any answers that we come up with are just fictional narratives. They're just more stories. They're just more blah, blah, blah. Um, these in, this, of course, includes answers like, of course there's life after life. You cannot be a Buddhist unless you believe in life after life. Unless you think you're going to be reborn, then you can't be a proper Buddhist. That, too, is just another fictional narrative. So we've been talking about this quite abstractly. Let me give a more concrete example. And the example that I always give is um, based on an event that happened to me years ago after my mother died, having lived in the same house for 50 years. The family had lived there for 50 years. My mother dies and we've got to clean the place up. So there's 50 years of life archaeology to dig through. Um, in the course of this excavation, I came across a whole bundle of photographs, and one in particular caught my eye. And it showed a, a, a boy sitting under a tree, wearing some kind of school uniform, and he looked to be about, about 15. And I was looking at this black and white, photo and of course the thought that arose in me was is this me or is it not me because they're the two possibilities aren't they I mean if you come across such a photograph you're looking at it there are two possibilities this is either a photo of me or it's a photo of somebody else it's not me um, the problem is that although I could create some kind of satisfactory narrative based on either of those answers, neither position actually sheds any light on the nature of the person who's looking now at the image, at the photo, and asking that question. All they do is create stories. So let's go through the two possibilities. The first answer, oh, this is me. This is a photo of me. doesn't work. Because it's perfectly obvious I am not that boy. I mean, I look quite different now. Um, and I have very different thoughts and feelings. And I would never have made the same mistakes that that 15-year-old boy made. There's no way I would be that stupid. You know, for a start, I'm, I, I am not nearly as driven and confused as that boy in that photograph is. So the answer, this is me, doesn't work. So there's only one other possibility. This is someone else. But don't you think implicitly when we look at a photo like that, when we, when we say this this is me when I was 15 and implicit in that is the understanding that you had a different mindset different behaviours and all of that other stuff built into yeah, that's, that's being somewhat more sophisticated with it this um, was me when but again there's something um, well let's, let's, let's look at that let's look at that a bit later 
Um, if I say, well, this is someone else, that doesn't work. Because if this photo is not of me, then how can I be so intimate with what that boy was going through? How can I know what his thoughts and feelings were? How can I understand the situation that he was living through? So that doesn't work either. Um, then I could try the variation. This was me. But all of those um, answers simply are narratives. Um, it's a sense of identity that feeds a narrative. This was me, but now I've changed. Because what happened after this was blah, 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 and I can track it, track it through the years. So I've got an identity narrative over time. But that's all I've got. I've just got another story. Um, but if I answer based on Paticca Samuppada, on dependent arising, then I can create an answer that sheds light on this situation right now. Um, on how this situation right now is constructed right now. So, for example, um, the decisions that that 15-year-old boy made continue to shape this situation now. This one that we're sitting in. So, if that 15-year-old boy had made different decisions, we would not be sitting in this hall undergoing this retreat. This retreat would not be happening. And whatever experiences you have had since the beginning of this retreat would never have occurred. Your mum was a powerful woman. She was. As was yours. Um, so it's basic to the Buddha's understanding that this experience situation right now is shaped in large part by decisions made previously. And this is karma vipaka, action and its ripening. And this is um, um, one reason why karma is so important. The Buddha sees every choice as being significant because it shapes the universe. Uh, and this is why it's, he, he feels it's so important that we really get to understand that process and respect it. It's easy to, to have a sense of powerlessness and to forget the fact, the fact that we help shape this world. And we're doing it all the time, whether we want to or not, whether we know it or not. It's just the nature of, of, of things. So the Buddha sees no reason to believe that death would interrupt this process of cause and effect. Um, death is just another event that arises and ceases 
dependent upon conditions. And birth is just another event that arises and ceases dependent upon conditions. It's death and any and what happens after. These questions um, are central to our fears and our vulnerabilities because we think of it in terms of the duality of existence and not not existence. My death, my annihilation, the possibility of my resurrection. For us, death has become so enormous because we think of it in terms of mine. Then it's really huge. But for the Buddha, any question or answer based on the assumption of self, any question based on the assumption of self is the wrong question because it makes sense only inside identity. Any answer we give to it is guaranteed to be wrong. And so the Buddha does not care about theories of post-mortem survival. He's got absolutely no interest in them. And when you hear people arguing against life after life, or even for it, what they're arguing about are theories of post-mortem survival. The Buddha never presents a theory of post-mortem survival. He's just not interested in it. That's not what he's talking about. He has no interest in the fate of the self. What he's interested in is how we live now. That's important. And it's important in part because how we live now will shape the future. So what we do now is important, is significant. So to give an example of how the Buddha addresses this particular issue, if you look at Mahatanha Sankhaya Sutta, the greater discourse on the ebbing away of craving, this is in Majjhima Nikaya, number 38. In one part of it, he's examining his students on their, on their practice. We, we see the Buddha operating as a meditation teacher. He says to them, understanding and seeing in this way, would you run back to the past? Were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? Having been what, what did we become in the past? And the students answer, no, Bhante, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> Understanding and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future? Shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what, what shall we become in the future? No, Bhante. Now, you notice that these questions, the emphasis is not on past and future. The emphasis is on the I who runs back to the past or forward to the future. That's what he's talking about. The, the identity that runs back to the past to confirm its reality or runs forward to the future to confirm its reality. And the mature students are saying, 
frankly, I can't be bothered. It's of absolutely no interest to me. It doesn't occur to me to think about it, much less get agitated about it. Understanding and seeing in this way, would you now be inwardly perplexed about the present? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? No. So, um, not even the self in the present, the identity within the present, is of any interest. Um, The self needs past and future because the self needs to be... Only past and future can give the, the stability through time that the self needs to actually set up camp in any convincing way. But the Buddha is saying that we can't even find it here and now, much less before and after. What we have is this, and that's all we have. So all this is bound up with the realisation of anatta, of not-self, and... um, the middle way. Um, Identity and difference. Me, not me. Alive, dead. Um, For the Buddha, these are extremes, anta. The question becomes, who are we between these two extremes? Can this question be answered in the language of identity? And if we're looking for an answer, when would such an answer be available? Well, I'll give you a hint. Not in the past and not in the future. Uh, so that's my my rave on life after life and its role in um, in the Buddha's teaching. Uh, I've got there's another section which we've got time to go through. Yes. Which, which, a couple of questions. Yeah. So the, the, you're saying the Buddha remembered his previous lives. Hmm. Who's previous? Oh, no, no, the Buddha didn't remember his previous lives. The Bodhisattva did before the awakening. Before the awakening? Yeah. So his identity? He still had an identity. So previous, previous identities? Yeah, he, he, he remembered his own past. And he remembered it in past of, this is who I was. So he still had a sense of identity. Previous lives? Yeah, but he extended it back through previous lives. Which you may you may choose to take as mythological rather than actual, but what he did was he thought back on previous identities that he he had held. So so now that's not true. You say? Yeah, he's uh, at one point he held one identity, and then later he held another, and then later he held another, and later he held another. Right. But each time he was holding one. His basic assumption was, this is who I am. 
And in that assumption is also the assumption, I've always been this, I always will be this. And each time, it was wrong. So he's shaking up his sense, the, the, the solidity, the fixedness of his sense of identity. Because he can see that all his, he's had lots of them. None of them apparently stuck around. So why should this one? None of them. Stuck around. When identities come and go, mm. it's a personality. Mm. It's that. Yeah, so it's, it's a shaking up of a sense of identity. They're still underlying, he's still not enlightened. So there's still this assumption that has to be something there. Right. But it's just shaking him up. So it's warming him up for the awakening. So that's its function in the, in the meditation practice when it comes up? Yeah, I think so. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, if he's experiencing several you know, different identities, that mu- must mean, I mean, for me it means that um, something is moving from one identity to the next. Yeah, which is probably what he assumed at that time. Yeah, but um, you know, if, if he is seeing several identities... But they're kind of connected. Yeah. So, um, what's connecting them? That's the question, and he found out that they weren't connected. Except in terms of cause and effect. Uh-huh. Not identity, not something that travels through. But there's a cause here gives rise to an effect. That in turn becomes a cause for something else to arise. That in turn becomes a cause for something else to arise. So you don't have something fixed that travels through time. You you have now an event and that event is caused in part by something that happened before and it will be in part the condition of something that will happen later on. Mm. But this event is only now. So the 14th Dalai Lama, they have no relationship to each other. They have a cause and effect relationship to each other a karmic relationship. But it's not the same person. Not on a personal level. Not on any level. Except the patterns of cause and effect. It's like the example of the whirlpool. What's What's the identity relationship of the whirlpool this year that appears in spring versus the whirlpool that appeared in the same place last year? Is it the same whirlpool? Is it a different whirlpool? It's a different belief system. It's a different way of looking at the universe, which is completely alien to our normal way of looking at the universe. Because we look at the universe from inside a sense of identity. And from there, certain things make sense and other things do not make sense. But if you step outside of that framework, it's a whole different world out there. Mm. And the Buddha's operating from outside that framework. Patrick, what do you think about um, uh, this host of um, usually children who uh, claim and claim to have experienced past lives and can do things like recite like chunks of some sacred Buddhist mm. texts and stuff. What do you think about that? Is that kind of like the Buddha before his enlightenment? Um, memories arise. Given appropriate conditions, certain memories will arise. 
And these trajectories, of cause and effect, go back eons. So, yeah, a memory arises. It fits within the same theory. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying that's no different in principle from remembering what we had for something. Yeah, in principle. It's the same. And what it is, is something that's being created in the present. But it's being created dependent upon certain conditions. And these conditions are immensely complex. And so for some people, the conditions are such that what arises in the present, what is constructed in the present, is a memory of something that happened 500 years ago. In, in, so I used to go to the Buddha house in, in Adelaide, which is very, it's Tibetan. Hmm. And they go on and on and on about doing this for your next life, so you have a better next life. And they go on and on and on about it. Mm. And this is this. It's it's kind of um, it's the way the subsequent traditions worked out how to persuade people to be good. Yeah, you know, it's the equivalent of if you're bad, you'll go to hell. If you're good, you go to heaven. It's just, at the same the same level. And it's interesting that there's you get um, literature where you have these morality tales that uh, someone is a thief in this life and they're reborn as a poor person. Or someone is stingy in this life and they're reborn as a poor person. Or someone gives is generous in this life and they're reborn as a rich person. Therefore, you should be generous, not stingy. Now, if you look at those stories from the perspective of dependent arising, the problem with them is you've got a single cause and a single effect. And the Buddha makes it perfectly clear there is no single cause and no single effect. It's an immense infinitely complex network of causes giving rise to an immense infinitely complex network of effects. Now the problem is that's too complex and too sophisticated to be boiled down to a simple morality tale. So they just kind of push it aside and just tell you a simple morality tale. And hopefully <coughs> it has the right result for the audience. <coughs> Possibly, yeah. because they put so much emphasis on believing it. I mean, they talk about, I, I don't know what it's called, Caravan uh, Buddhism. I've, I've heard it, but I can't remember the name. But, but substrate consciousness is what it's called in Tibetan. Mm. Uh, I and I even heard Atan Mahabur talk about this uh, years ago, uh, talking about the, the consciousness that comes from one one person to the next, it's like this. There's that, there, even amongst Buddhists, there'll be a strong belief in something. Yeah, yeah. Something, that, something that moves from here to there. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, uh, but it's, it's, you know, the way we can understand it is, of course, just cause a better relationship. It's like a, a billiard ball going through a series of billiard balls, like there's energy. It looks like it's the same ball going through. You get these billiard balls lined up. That's actually just the cause effect relationships. Continuity. Continuity. Yeah, the causal continuities. Yeah. That's yeah. rather than rather than the continuity of identity. That's the same all the way through. Mm. It's I know, causal continuity. It's a trajectory of cause and effect mm. flowing down. Shall we stop here or move on and go through the cultural bit as well? Okay.
<laughs> this is just some observations or speculations on my part about why in our culture we have particular difficulty in coming to terms with the teaching of life after life. Um, basically because of our particular cultural conditioning. We are every, everybody raised in a culture, which is everybody, is conditioned to cling to certain things as being true and obvious and right, etc. So we're shocked when we go to another culture and find discover that they don't think that. They're clinging to something else. And we think, why don't they get their act together? So in our culture, we cling to science. Um, human beings want certainty, and in our culture, we've been trained to look for certainty to science. Science will tell us what's actually going on. So if we have a belief, um, for it to be worthy of assent, it has to pass through some kind of scientific test, which in practice means it has to fit through, fit within standard orthodox materialism. So obviously life after life immediately gets jumped. Uh, where the Buddha's teaching differ from those of science we tend to see that, see that situation in terms of a conflict. Science, Dharma conflicts with science. So we've got a battle going on. And so, but as soon as we make that move, then we're forced to choose one side or the other. We choose either the Dharma or we choose science. And that's exactly the situation, of course, that fundamentalist Christians are in when they feel they have to choose between the Bible and science. So some choose the Bible and some choose science. But Dharma is not science and it's not contrary to science. It's a complete it's just a different discourse. Um, it's a um, the Dharma is a teaching about the nature of human experience from the perspective of the experiencing subject, the one undergoing the experience. So to give a, um, an, an example, it's commonly stated in Dharma books and Dharma teachings that the Buddha taught that the universe is beginningless. Have you ever come across that statement? Someone telling you that? He never said that. What he said was, a beginning to this samsara cannot be discerned. There's a big difference between these two statements. The universe has no beginning. That's an ontological statement about the nature of the world out there. It is impossible to, dis to discern the beginning of the universe. That is not a statement about the universe. It's a statement about the nature of human experience. There is a big difference. And basically it's the difference between a third person statement and a first person statement. Uh, science is a third person discourse. It purports to teach about the world which is out there, the actual objectively existing world. Dharma is about the nature of human experience. So, Dharma cannot be in conflict with science because it just is, it covers a whole different area. Um, 
if we get the two of them mixed up, then if you bring in a doctrine or a so-called belief like life after life, then you either got to um, believe it or take a scientific approach. In other words, if you want evidence for the teaching of life after life, where will we find it? Well, in our culture, we would think, well, you find it in science. And there is scientific studies about this. And the famous one is University of Virginia collecting immense amounts of data about memories of previous lives, of people who actually have, or claim, memories of previous lives. And some of these these have been checked out and they appear to be valid. So here you have sociological evidence. So that fits within science. But from the perspective of Dharma, if we're looking for the evidence of the teaching of life after life, where would we find it? We would find it in the nature of our experience right here and right now. This is where we would find it. Experience arises from a cause and it ceases from a cause and this process rolls on and on and on and on and on. And I've never been in, I've never experienced the beginning of it and I've never experienced the end of it. All my experience tells me is that an event arises because of causes and conditions, it ceases because of causes and conditions, and another event arises because of causes and conditions, and it ceases because of causes and conditions, and so on. <coughs> so science tends to get in the way. And this is linked with our determination to cling to familiar cultural categories. Um, anything new in the Dharma that, as a, that we come across, we forced to fit into these preconceived categories. We don't generally consider the possibility of making the effort to view the world differently, the way the Buddha viewed the world. So, for example, Dharma. Um, Dharma is not a European cultural category. It does not appear in European culture. Um, And so what we tend to do is when we come across Dharma, we will chop it up into categories that are familiar to us. So science, for example, or religion. They're the two obvious ones. Uh, Science can be subdivided. Um, Psychology, the Buddha taught psychology. Or philosophy, the Buddha taught philosophy. Um, So we can divide it up We can even be more sophisticated. We can say some aspects of Dharma are science, some aspects are psychology, some aspects are philosophy, some aspects are religion, like all this life-after-life business, so we'll just ditch the religion ones and keep the others. And this is somehow purer. Um, But the problem that we do that is that we necessarily misunderstand Dharma because... um, Science, psychology, philosophy, but above all religion, these are European cultural categories. They are not Indian cultural categories. At least Dharma uh, is not, it does not fit into any of these categories. The Buddha did not teach psychology. He did not teach science. He did not teach philosophy. He taught Dharma. It's a different category. Um, if we try to take Dharma and make it conform to some European 
cultural category because it's familiar to us, we end up hobbling the Dharma because there will be aspects of it that simply do not fit there. So what do we do with them? Well, we chuck them out because it's not respectable, it's not scientific, or it's not whatever. Um, so it's a question of us being willing to go to the Buddha. Okay, you're talking about Dharma. We don't know what Dharma is because we come from a European background. So you have to teach us. And we have to make an effort to actually try to figure it out. But generally, as a culture, we're not prepared to actually do that. That's... Yeah, Katie. Uh, it seemed to me not so much that it was a European thing, but that it takes a lot of effort to keep on resisting, in my observation, keep on resisting the urge to either turn Buddha into an interventionist he will do something for us and I have seen um, not just Europeans do that like pray to Buddha to do something yeah. which is not part of the plot and the other thing it take, I think it takes a lot of effort to resist this this self thing at coming back after life and that's not just a European oh, no, thing no. like I'll come back as well I mean the yeah. problem so it's almost, it's so revolutionary that I think the human tendency is always to dilute yeah. this Buddhism in those two directions and it's not yeah, it's necessarily that, European. I, I, I agree with that. This is what the first part of the talk was all about. Mm. The commitment to self is so strong in everybody that it's very difficult to get a hold of this. Mm. So even in Asia you find people making exactly the same moves mm. if they haven't actually got anatta. If you don't get anatta, you don't get life after life. Yeah, I think it's almost unnatural to get it, you have to work at it. Mm. Plus there's the, the, the extra stuff, the cultural stuff on top. Mm. So this is the kind of the extras that we're talking about here. So yes, I agree with you. Um, then there's the issue of imagination, which I think is, is very important. Um, Patrick, are you, are you sort of arguing against the passing of Buddhism so into parts so it can be digested by the West? Oh no, that's saying that, that we're missing out on, on loads. Within within itself, it's fine. It's like take Buddhist psychology. Um, you take aspects of the Buddhist teaching and um, meld it with Western psychology. The result is fantastic. Mm. A lot of dukkha is relieved, but to then make the move, well, it's just a psychology. Right. Okay, fine. Uh, you're a psychologist, you're out there doing mindfulness-based interventions, and someone says, well, wait a minute, um, don't people worship the Buddha? Isn't Buddhism a religion? Uh, how can you advertise this workshop where it has Buddhist stuff when uh, we're, we're a secular organisation? We don't do that. We don't do religion. Oh. Yeah. You're caught. You're suddenly you're in this fly trap. It's kind of like a Trojan horse, I think, in some ways. Though, like the um, psychology of Buddhism and psychology in the West at the moment. So, it can it can be used as a Trojan horse. There's on, on. Do you listen to Buddhist geeks? Mm-hmm. They had one one episode some time ago called Stealth Buddhism. <laughs> the idea of Infiltrating the mindfulness, secular mindfulness movement, and converting people to Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're a you know a Christian or whatever, and you heard that, you'd be 
that give it all the more reason to reject all these mindfulness concepts. It's, it's the same path. Instead of saying, well, look, it's Dharma, and it's not religion. But if there's something in Dharma that can be helpful, go ahead. But So this comes to a challenge of imagination. Part of any tradition is imagination, is how we imagine things to be. And that includes religion and it includes science. So science, we know, is based on empiricism. But there's a large body of scientific teaching that people subscribe to without any empirical foundation whatsoever. Um, Take the whole field of quantum mechanics. How many people have empirically experienced quantum mechanics? Or the Big Bang. The number of people who confidently assert, yes, yes, the Big Bang. That's how the universe began. Really? Were you there? How do you know? They have formulas. So, um, basically, science, scientists will take a series of equations that work and that provide an elegance of expression. When you hear the scientists talking, the elegance and the beauty of the equation is very important for them in terms of what they decide is true. Mm-hmm. So they have a certain set of equations which they take to be elegant. You can see Vedana is operational here. And then they imagine a universe based on those equations and then they write books and go on TV and say this is what the universe is and we say oh yeah that's it must be so because it's scientific but it's certainly an act of the imagination and it doesn't matter though because it's not if they say dinosaurs were on the earth that doesn't affect how we live now no it doesn't matter yeah, in some ways it doesn't matter but let me let me go on <laughs> so where it matters um, so, in other words, as a culture, we are conditioned to, conditioned to imagine the world in certain ways, ways that strike us as being quite natural. And so we resist the idea of imagining the universe in a different way. And life after life, as a doctrine, is part of a, a broader package that imagines the universe very differently from the way that we imagine the universe. So the Buddha imagines the universe as infinite in space, in time, and in possibilities. Infinite time, infinite space, infinite possibilities. Now this is an act of the imagination. It's a way of imagining the universe. If you think about the way Western culture has imagined the universe, for thousands of years, the Western universe, which was defined largely defined by Aristotle, we imagined the universe to be a flat earth, with a dome above it, which was the sky, that had holes in the top through which shone light because above the, the dome was the heaven. It was heaven, and the light from the, what we call the stars were the lights of heaven. Um, well, I think so. <laughs> how does that affect it? What happens in the daytime? Is there like some pool of blind across or something like that? The sun goes across from un- under the dome. And the brightness of the sun blots out all of that. So today we imagine a much bigger universe. So the universe that we imagine began, according to my Google search, 13.8 billion years ago. And if Google says it, it must be true. So the Big Bang, there was this Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. So it's a much bigger universe. Um, But again, it's an act of the imagination. 
but we do it quite naturally because of our cultural preconditionings. Sometimes those who deny life after life do so on the grounds that we in the West are scientific. And so we cannot be expected to subscribe to non-scientific, even anti-scientific beliefs. We don't do not science. We do science. That's what we do. Um, but this is just another way of limiting our imaginations. Why not learn to imagine the universe differently if it's useful to us? Um, and it's interesting that those who deny life after life also tend to deny the reality of awakening as a reality. And it makes perfect sense because life after life gives the time and the, and the and this cosmological space to make the awakening project viable. If I've only got 80 to 100 years, I don't like my chances, frankly. But if I've got an infinite universe with infinite possibilities, with a trajectory that's rolling along, it's possible. So this particular act of the imagination has a genuine impact on the way that I live and the way that I approach practice. I don't shut down possibilities. Mm. I open up to them. Um, what would it be like to imagine the universe as infinite and ourselves as part of a universal network that is not limited by any self-identity? What would it be like to inhabit such a universe? Um, perhaps it would encourage us to open up to possibilities that under conditions of normality we would never imagine or would never accept, never consider. So in part this is an opening up of the imagination. Other cultures have learned to imagine the universe differently. The Buddha and the traditions following him have learned different ways of imagining the universe. Why should we be so culturally insular that we simply refuse outright to make that adaptation? Um, due to karmic whatevers, I have a connection with South Korea. And I f find um, South Korean culture to, to be incredibly interesting and dynamic. And if you look at the history of Korea, most of it, much of it tragic, um, a couple of hundred years ago, the way that they imagined the universe and had imagined it for thousands of years was in a very straightforward East Asian Buddhist, Confucian, shamanist, Taoist way of imagining the universe. And then, around the um, 18th century, books began to creep in from Beijing about this new Western belief system which was called Christianity. And these people imagined the universe in a very different way. Ways that, when studied by a few members of the Korean elite, overthrew much of their social and political certainties about the way that society should be operated. And then of course came other things, modernity crashing in, revolution, war, etc. And the Koreans have gone through this incredible transformation in which now they imagine the universe in ways very, very different 
from the way that their ancestors imagined the universe. And you have this dynamism within that culture. I contrast this with people like, for example, uh, a certain Pauline Hansen, who some years ago saw street signs in Sydney written in Chinese and said, we don't do that. We're Australians. <laughs> we don't have street signs in Chinese. We do not do that. Bang. Close possibilities down. Do not imagine the universe any differently. But that's the road to provincialism, isolation, cultural death. Isn't it much better to be open to other possibilities when they come knocking on the door? So when we're faced with the Buddha, the Buddha's teaching is a lot more radical and a lot more wild than we tend to imagine. When we start to actually get in there and have a look, it's immense and it's wild and it's profound. So why not be open to the possibility of looking at the way that he perceives the universe and start to imagine it that way? It is an act of imagination, we don't know. But what would it be like if I changed the way that I imagine the universe? And why resist it just because we haven't done it before? Okay, that's it. Any other questions or comments? I've got a um, Buddhist friend, oddly enough, and um, she and I are often talking about striving or not striving for enlightenment. And she's striving very hard for it in this lifetime. And she also believes in life after life. Mm. So it's the same correlation, but her, her thing is she can't bear the idea of another life. Mm. So for her it's not, I need the time, that's like getting me out of it. Yeah. Aversion. <laughs> if you look at um, people for whom Tedavada tends to be attractive, Often, what, one of the things that characterises them is the desire for non-existence. Get me out of here. And these will be often criticised as non-uncompassionate by followers of Mahayana, who are often characterised by a desire for existence. Ah, I can be reborn infinite lives as a Bodhisattva. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and of course, both of these are, are extremes. This, um, the, the not belief in life after life is, would you say that's one of the features of someone who calls himself a secular Buddhist? I mean, now that, that term's been bounced around. I'm, I still, I don't know what this it's one of the, the, That tends to be one of the things that gets up their nose, is this notion of life after life, because they see it as religion, quote-unquote, and they don't like religion. So again, it's like looking at it in these fixed European categories without actually making the jump to realise, well, no, it's, you've got to look at it from outside European cultural categories. And it's a whole different game. Akim, okay, you? Yeah. I think um, Sharon Salzberg talks about the understanding of cause and effect. I think she said the Buddha said this. That he, correct me if I'm wrong, or she's wrong. Um, that it's the light of the world. Are they her words or um, the Buddha's words? 
I wouldn't be surprised if they're Buddha's words. But she often quotes that. Yeah, I don't. I haven't. Cause and effect. The understanding of it. Hmm. I haven't um, come across it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't things like chaos theory, quite and other aspects of science, quite compatible with dependent origination? So it's not really life after life is a form of dependent origination. Not all forms of science are incompatible with it. No, uh, dependent origination, dependent arising is a theory, and you can find other theories that mesh. So it can be easier to for us to understand dependent arising if we come at it via uh, Western theories but can't we that are dependent that are compatible. Yes, we can experience it, but then how do we talk about it, even to ourselves? What what's the conceptual framework that we use? Yeah, so those those other Western ones. What's wrong with them? There's nothing wrong with them. That's what I'm saying. That you can, you can, you can. What, what other wisdom ones? Well, say chaos theory, or just um, yeah. like I liken it to like the most enormous multiple regression equation ever invented. It's just yeah. squid in a variable. So that's then that could be termed secular because it, yeah. it doesn't really arise. Well, you can name it whatever you like, but if if there are, there are clearly there are certain theories from Western culture which are compatible with depend- the theory of dependent arising and clearly they can be helpful in order to cultivate an understanding of dependent arising. And would you call them secular? I, don't, I haven't thought of it. No. I don't know. I mean, what does secular mean? It's a very vague, slippery term. Mm. It's the problem with words like secular is that they're often used in the context of some kind of competition for who's right and who's not right. So even to use the term means you're stepping into the contest. But clearly there are aspects of Western culture which can be used as an entry point into understanding where the Buddha's coming from. Um, And we would be wise to employ them if we're interested in coming to terms with the Buddha. But there's also coming from his side as well that like your interest in the suttas, we go to him and try to work out on his own terms what he's talking about and where he's coming from. Well, it's easier to read than uh, a <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>